Welcome into Natchez Glenhouse Stories. As you guys know, there's no conversation. I like having more than talking about great gardens from around the world. And then trying to link some of those great gardens to the gardening culture in the United States. And are we seeing the total picture? Are we getting a feel for it? Are we telling the stories of plants through gardens versus sometimes inversing that? And really understanding what gardens can be and what it, and the people and the places and the culture that can be associated with it, which really leads us to a philosophy, kids. And my guest for this week's story is Carolyn Mullet, who has this really unique thing that you do, Carolyn, these tours. And you have a book that's going to be coming out. And I want to touch base with you on this big subject first to lay some foundation for everyone. How did you start doing this? How were you a passionate gardener? Were you in the the garden design industry? What led you to suddenly leading these tours to some of these European gardens? Well, I uh it it, it all came about through social media, which uh it was not something I intended, but it's something that happened to me. In back in the in the uh, during the recession, I was I've, I'm a guard. I was a garden designer. I'm retired now, uh, but I was working for a design build firm. And during the recession, the 2008 on recession, they uh, there was a lot of business was, was lost. And so uh, suddenly they wanted everyone in the company, all the designers, to uh, reach out somehow, um, you know, do social media, start, in, start a newsletter, um, uh, start a, 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 a website all your own, not just with the company. And I, uh, <laughs> because I was on Facebook with because I had a young daughter, I decided I would do Facebook because I knew it already. And for three, four, five months, I showed my own work. And then I just got bored with showing my own work. I kind of, you know, ended up doing the same thing over and over. And I decided to show other people's work. This is a, I, I'm going to get to the point in a little bit. No, this is perfectly good, <laughs> Carolyn. This is, this is, we have plenty of time. Go for it. So I started showing other people's work uh, from around the world, people that I'd heard of or I stumbled on or something like that, you know, that I'd read about. And um, I started gathering a, a very um, sizable following and it eventually got up to more than a million followers. And because of that, you know, suddenly everybody, all my friends, everybody that knew me was saying, you've got to monetize this. You've got to do something. And it took, I, at first I resisted. And then I thought, well, maybe I should. And I came up with this thing that fit into my idea of what I wanted to do, as well as perhaps was a next step. And that was to um, organized tours to Europe, um, you know, to see the gardens that, uh, 
some of the gardens that I was showing on my Facebook page, but actually be there in person with a small group of people. And that's how it started. Which is really, Um, did you find yourself as a garden designer? And I think for all of us that are in this like garden designer, the professional side of it, the horticulture, the nursery world of it, were the gardens you were sharing gardens that inspired you in the work that you were doing professionally at the time? At times, yeah, and there, but there were also, once I started looking, there were a lot more that I had never known about. And so, you know, the, the internet opens up this huge world of uh, uh, seeing other people's work. I mean, it doesn't matter what field you're in, you know, if you're a jeweler or a sculptor or any kind of creative field, suddenly it, you weren't, your world was much larger. And so I looked I I got into it that way. But yes, they were very inspiring. Um you know, you're you know as a gar- as a designer uh, and as someone who's been in the garden world that it isn't just what inspires the designer, but the homeowner has to be in on it too. And since those pesky homeowners, Carolyn, sometimes, (laughs) you know, you're wanting to do something interesting and they're like, how many more boxwoods can we put underneath the house? And you're like, don't you have enough already? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, you got it. Uh, So, you know, so I wouldn't say there was a direct line because my community uh, had a particular, they were used to a particular look. And even though I tried to nudge them, um, a lot of times it, 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 wasn't as much of a direct line to the things I was seeing as I would have liked. Um, Which is a really fascinating thing, right? Were you at times uh, as a garden designer, were you frustrated at at points? You're not with maybe specific clients, but just in in general at times that you weren't maybe speaking the same language. You know, you were speaking the language of maybe some of these, these historic gardens, you know, the easy ones to pick on Sissinghurst and Dixter and Mm -hmm. places like that. But the client wasn't even really aware of them, right? For especially a lot of us based Mm -hmm. clients, there's not even an awareness. Those gardens exist for them. Um, in general, if we're going to generalize, yes, I would agree with you that it, it was, uh, it was, there were, there was frustration. I would say though, you know, it's, it was for me, it was less on the client side than it was the landscaping industry. The, the, we, I felt hemmed in by the, uh, by the landscapers wanting to do what was familiar to them rather than being willing to step outside their comfort zones. And that that was a real frustration, um, and it happened a lot, that I would want to do something a certain way to get a certain result, and they couldn't see it because they had never, they had, no, it, it, I think they were actually a little afraid that it might end up causing them problems in some way. And isn't that so, an interesting thing? I think we have a mutual friend in Jimmy Blake at Hunting Brook. Oh, and <laughs> yes. Jimmy uh-huh. was just on the podcast recently, and oh, we, we, yeah. we discussed the word brave. Uh-huh. And sometimes the word brave 
isn't there for people in the gardening world. Is that sort of what you would feel sometimes that people just, they were Mm -hmm. in that very, hey, we've done 300 designs and installs in the last X days. And you know what? We really want to keep them all pretty similar to those previous 300. Yeah, it's, it's, it was, I think it had to do with both uh, creative uh, fear and also fear of losing money. Uh, and I, and I was very sympathetic to that, but I also knew that unless if, if we just kept doing the same thing over and over, I was going to be bored to tears. So there were a lot of struggles, but anyway, you know, um, I, I think, you know, I think there, there are times when you can, um, you get hemmed in by the area you live in. And that's that it, it, in other places in our country, it would have been different. I think, Um, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, I live outside of the Nashville area and I would say if I see uh one more Magnolia Grandiflora, um, you know, I might, (laughs) I might have a small hemorrhage. Right. And it's, I think what you're expressing there I think as we'll start to to pivot and when you start actually putting the tours together and you start really traveling uh, to Europe a lot, that is a, a very, you know, some of it makes sense because it's, well, climatically, the United States is so diverse. But mm-hmm. then there is also this, well, my neighbors have those and then I have those. And then the next thing you know, the whole community has that same look when you go up to the New England area. Mm-hmm. The the big leaf rhododendrons are everywhere, right? There's this very plants that have almost become synonymous with these regions of the country. And I don't necessarily think that's always a good thing. It does create this sort of box approach for people. Right. But I do want to say that it happens in Europe too. They're, although they are um they have a wider world in the sense that they have a a a, a more robust gardening culture um in most of the countries that i visited but uh they also get hemmed in by their own you know they they're they have their blinders on in certain ways too they do you mind if i give you an example no absolutely yeah absolutely okay well um there was a, a new garden, and this one is in my book. Uh, it's uh, Jardin d'Etretat. It's in France, in Normandy, and uh, it was it's it was just made like I think it's now four years four years ago, uh, and it was made uh, by a, a Russian landscape architect. Um, and he he came there on vacation to this seaside little village that's absolutely a dream. And he uh, happened to find out that a property in in the village was that was sitting way, way up on top of the, the cliffs um, overlooking the ocean. Uh, it, it's actually the English Channel. I should correct myself uh, that it was for sale. And he fell in love with it and decided to buy it. And for the first time in his life, he decided he would make a garden just for himself. 
what he wanted to do, not what a client wanted, but just purely for his own pleasure. But also, he, from the beginning, he wanted the garden to be open to other people. He wanted to share it with other people coming in. And he made this garden. It is like nothing else I've ever seen. It is uh, just, it's all, uh, or 90, let's say 95% of it is uh, shaped shrubs of various kinds, extremely imaginative, very, very unlike any other garden. I probably have said that already because it's such a big thing in my head. And he also brought in modern sculpture that was at the right scale for the garden. And when you walked in, you walk in at the very top, it's on a, a very steep slope at the very top and gradually move down through the garden until you move over to an area where you again see the cliffs. And um, it, it's an extraordinary uh, space and it's an extraordinary accomplishment. He did it in two years. Um, and uh, and then opened the garden for people to come visit. Well, when the garden when he when he opened up, there were major magazines in garden magazines in England that proclaimed there's nothing there to see. It was like they had blinders on. All they could you know they it had to be a floriferous. Uh, kind of, uh, you know, straight lined, <laughs> almost mm. straight lined uh, kind of garden. It had to be borders before they would consider it something that's worth seeing. Now, the, a couple of them have now uh, in the last six months done articles on it because it's very popular and uh, you kind of can't ignore something that's doing so well. But that was their first, their, they just shut it out. I mean, they could not, they, they could not see what was there. They couldn't enjoy it for what it was, you know, to switch gears and to look at it differently than what your conception of what a garden is. And, and, and isn't that interesting, too, that the same thing happened in the U.S. when Pete Aldoff did the Lori right. Garden at the very beginning? And there were people yes. in the, the gardening world and some in the gardening media who were like, what is this? <laughs> they, they, they just didn't get it. And no, they didn't. They didn't get it. And they also, I think they made up their minds about Pete um, before they had really learned to know him in any way or to, you know, it was just... It was not something that they were comfortable with because they'd never seen it. And I think they felt a lot of competition, frankly, you know? No, I think you're right. And also, how much of this is, is I, I want to get us into the conversation about when you start going on the tours, but, you know, th there's this interesting argument and a lot of garden designers and a lot of gardeners, and, and I think there's at times a humility to almost using the word uh, I know Pete has resisted the word of artist um, right, and, and creative, yeah. but so much of sometimes understanding the art is understanding the artist. 
and mm-hmm. that sometimes that that disconnect like what you're mentioning that happened in France as well is is a problem sometimes you know for sort of the establishment in some of these lanes whatever the lane might be right when you get someone mm-hmm. who comes into it and maybe they're seen as disruptive or not to the norms they don't understand sometimes the person and the intent and the creative vision behind what this person is trying to mm-hmm. communicate. Absolutely right. I think that that's, that certainly happens. I, I don't, I, I have to say, I haven't seen it often because we don't have things that are truly new very often in the garden world. No, now, most of us, most, most things are standing on the shoulders of what came before. Well, Pete's work is also standing on the shoulders of what came before. And certainly Alexander Rivko in at Etretat, uh, he was standing on the shoulders of topiary gardens in France. So we all we all do that, but it is hard sometimes to just open yourself up and let yourself experience. And that's one of the things that I really try to get across to my travelers is that, you know, it isn't about knowing everything about the garden. It isn't about knowing every plant in the garden. It doesn't matter what you don't know. What is important is walking in with an, with an open mind and an open heart and taking in what that garden has to tell you wherever you are in your journey of learning about gardens or of participating in garden making. And it's the, it's that openness that's really important. And it's the feeling that you get from it. Um, And uh, you know, part of this, if I may just uh, take a little sidestep here is because so many garden tours are about, letting the expert tell you what is important. Now, I think some of that is is good, but it really what I hope is is that people who come on my tours will be um open their eyes to what's to what's in front of them. That it will be a it's like looking at art. You can, you know, you can have the headphones on and learn about something, but in the end, you have to confront it with your own sensibilities. And since I believe that gardens are um, the same kind of expression or creative expression or cultural expression that paintings and music and sculpture all all of those creative activities that that's how we have to come to it we have to kind of you know bring ourselves wherever we are and open ourselves up well and i i think and, you're 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 hitting on something that comes up on the podcast so often carolyn is mm-hmm. this this issue of creativity that i don't know if everyone who looks at gardening from the outside in is aware of, of just what a creative medium it can be. I think it has been, especially in the United States more so, a very rigid thing. I I noticed this on social media interaction when people come to me for plant and gardening advice. 
It's very mm-hmm. rigid. It's a recipe kind of thing, you know. Tell me the date to do this and tell me the thing that this and what's the variety mm-hmm. that's this and it's and it's sort of missing some of this bigger creativity and philosophy right. behind it. That it's not so much no 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 no. It's not that we're planting this cultivar or that we're doing this. It's understanding this bigger picture concept that we're trying to mm-hmm. achieve here with this planting. And you need good technicals and knowledge opens up freedom and there's things like that that can be said. But at the end of the day, it's a personal experience and you have Mm -hmm. to build a garden out that way. When you start doing those early tours that you put together, you've you've had this success using social media. What's the first places you go to? How did you come to that decision of, I'm going to take these first groups to these gardens? Well, for me, I, I I felt as though we first had to do two things. One was to see the uh, see English gardens because I think it's the most developed gardening culture in our world today, and uh, there are so many fabulous gardens there that um, I felt like that was the first place, and uh, you know. You could make <laughs> you could make itineraries anywhere in that country, and they you would see good gardens. But we 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 started in England, and then the second thing was that, and and, and I have to backtrack a little bit. One of the things I wanted to do, uh, I felt was important for me to do with my tour company, was to um, see gardens of our time. In other words, I many, many other tours do historical gardens. And although I love to see historical gardens, I felt like I wanted to do something a little different. And so I wanted to see gardens of the 21st century. And so that's what we focused on. Not that we don't deviate sometimes. If we're in an area and there is a really, really, uh, you know, important historical garden, we will probably go see it. But what I'm most interested in is those gardens that have been made uh, in the last 20, 25 years. And because that's of our, that speaks of where we are at as, as, as gardeners, as garden makers. And so. uh, Even some of the economics of some of the historic gardens, like a place like Stowe is a great example, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Built you know, hundreds of years ago now, just economically couldn't be created today, right? With the amount of workforce that would have to be used to go into it. It would be, you know, everyone in in the world would be like, so how much is this project going to cost? Uh, It's coming in at a cool $400 billion. Um, You know, do you feel like there's a sense of that too, that some of the gardens that are, that have either evolved with time or that are a little bit newer in date are a little bit more reflective of both modern approaches, but also maybe the word recreatable is in there somewhere more so? Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Yes. Yes. And, I, I, you know, because I'm a, I, I think it has to do with, I saw from the inside of, you know, garden making, what it took to to make a garden that was, interesting to be inside to be in 
And so I wanted to see how other people were doing it now and not so much looking back. You know, we do go to Sissinghurst and um, and Hidcote and places like that. Uh, you know, but Great Dixter is like a really fantastic example of a garden that is historic. Um, it's, you know, was built in the 1920s, but it is now one of the best modern gardens in England. Not because of its structure. Its structure is historic. But the way that it is being gardened uh, into the plants that are being used, they're not stuck back in the 1920s. They're look, they're, you know, it's everything that is happening right now ends up being distilled in in Great Dixter at some point. And isn't that fascinating how that is so reflective? Mm-hmm. Even though Christopher Lloyd has, you know, been passed away, I think for almost 15 or 16 years now, that his spirit of pushing and again being right. brave and not worrying when he rips out the rose garden that had been there mm-hmm. since the Lutchens era of the garden that he didn't care. Right? He he mm-hmm. knew and now Fergus in turn knows that being brave is a big part of gardening and changing and continuing. Is that something that when you, you have groups that, that come through a place like Dixter, how much of that do you, do you communicate? Does the team there communicate? Do you think people have an understanding of, and I always feel awkward in saying this sometimes, but I think everyone there would agree with this comment I'm about to make, Carolyn, that is, is Christopher Lloyd's shadow is there? Sure. But I think what's really there is his philosophy. And that philosophy right. was pushing the narrative forward. And you can still see that today. Right. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. Well, I try and introduce that to um, my travelers. Uh, and I, you know, I honestly don't know how much they, you know, take in of that, but I more than anything want them just to experience the garden and to feel its energy. You know, that garden is such, has such a intense energy. Um, and I think they do get that. Because they come in and say, you know, come into the coach saying, wow, wow. <laughs> and so they really, you know, on that level, they get it. Um, have yeah, you I ever guess. had someone who experiences a garden like that? And then in their own garden, you hear from later on, takes a bit of that magic back with them, that bravery of just, you know, that rose bush, that knockout rose, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, Carolyn, that they've had for five years that they, every time they look at it, they go, nah, but they don't, you know, it's not dying. It still looks fine, but it really doesn't bring them any kind of joy in the garden and they rip it out and they replace it with something more dynamic or interesting to them. Yes. Yes. It happens all the time. I've even had people who changed careers, <laughs> who, who went back to school in, uh, in design and, 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 and uh, in landscape design or landscape architecture, um, you know, which is kind of amazing. But the, the gardens were so inspirational to them, and they saw something there that was missing in their current career. 
how many of the people that came on your tours in the beginning were people that were like in the industry or other garden designers or mm-hmm. were they just general public audience? What was the mix like in the beginning and has the mix um, changed over time? No, it's pretty much the same, actually, except for the tours I do to the Netherlands and Germany, which are all about Adolf's um, uh, style of planting, which is really like a seminar <laughs> in a way or a work, workshop, a rolling workshop. Um those tend to, to uh, attract more designers, uh, people who are trying to use his style or learn. They, they feel like they need to see more and think about it more and meet him and talk to him and things like that. Um, it has always been about uh, a quarter to half our designers and the rest are regular uh gardeners a lot of uh, master gardeners um and i'm saying a lot but i mean you know a quarter tend to be master gardeners and then there are people who just love to see gardens you know they aren't particularly um in it in any other way other than they love to, to visit gardens it's the way that they like to get the the kind of um what can I, it, it it informs them about the culture of the country they're in and and i think that's a very valuable part of it you know that there yeah. is this mm-hmm. component of you know the i i lament quite frequently carolyn that as i i said where i live there's i wouldn't say a strong gardening culture and it's something that that bothers me, right? Like I don't have a place to go and, and to sort of find some of that energy that you mentioned exists at some of the gardens like Dixter in the UK that mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like a recharge of your batteries almost mm-hmm. that you can exactly. go somewhere, you can learn something, you can see something. Um, how many of the people that have gone on your tours, you mentioned career changes even for people that it's just, it's a complete eye-opening change for them compared to maybe what they've seen here in the States. It, it, oh, that happens all the time. Uh, th- there, there are people that come up to me at some point and they say, it's just, I never knew that gardens could be like this. It's really so, you know, so complete, so... You know, and that's one of the things that I think about European gardens. They tend to take an idea and develop it further than many, many gardens are developed in this country. We don't go quite far enough. Mm. And that's what people see. And they, yeah, you know, I, there's a woman, you know, I get international travelers too, not just the United States, although most are from the United States. But, um, there was a there's a woman from Greece that I that has traveled with me twice now, and her first tour, uh, you know, she went on the Aldorf tour, and it was to the Netherlands, and I think we went to Germany that year too, and it it, it you know, she writes me all the time and says I have never, uh, you know, I I didn't know that this was the garden the kind of gardening I love, but now I know I had never seen it. And, um, 
So it, it, it's very nice. It's very rewarding to be a part of someone's um, kind of emotional re- response to a garden, to have, have created the, the, the place that that can happen. And that it, it that it touches them so deeply is is very moving to me. Well, I think there's such value in broadening cultural experience for anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, f- uh, food yeah. is an easy one to pick on, right? I grew up in right. Tampa, Florida, and because of so many Cuban immigrants being in Florida, there were fantastic Cuban restaurants all around. Mm, uh-huh. But yet, if you go to I don't know. I'm going to pick on a part of the country here. No offense to you, Cincinnati, Ohio, but I'm just I'm assuming because I've been there a few times and I probably know. You know, if you grow up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and you don't have that access to that mm-hmm. food culture, you really just don't know, and yeah, that's it, right. it, it's hard to even create a ladder of expectations. Of you could have a Cuban restaurant in your town that opens. And maybe it's actually very average to poor Cuban food, but that's the only one you've been exposed to. So your mm-hmm. cultural norm is just limited. Your perspective has right. not been broadened at all. And I think with gardening in particular, I think there's a lot of comparative there because I think as you just said, like sometimes in the United States, we're just not bringing it to that next level where we're, we're, we're driving through those neighborhoods that I mentioned and we're just seeing the same home over and over again repeated. Do you see that trickle down into the, the uh, many of the gardens that you're visiting are newer in creation that there is just this palette that's maybe more expressive in a lot of those gardens in Europe? I, I think I can generalize and say that's true. Um, I think I'm trying to think it is, am I exaggerating? But I, I, I think it is true. I think, you know, what is, what is one of the most valuable things is seeing the way people structure their gardens, these newer gardens, and then how plants uh, are used to make that structure um, more expressive. And uh, and I think that that happens a lot uh, in, in the newer gardens. The other thing is that when you are in a more uh, contemporary garden, a garden that's made recently, the owners are usually in the picture. And they are passionate about what they're doing. It isn't like there's an arm's length distance. And that is always just fascinating to me, how that they decided they wanted a garden and they made the effort, whether it was making it themselves and putting their own, you know, resources, their labor and, um, you know, as they had money to make the garden um, or they hired someone and worked with a professional to, to make it happen. Um, and either way turns, you know, it, it, it frequently ends up being something that's really worth seeing. Well, and, and that's one of those also, it's a, that's a really interesting point because I know this is something that has come up in Pete's work that a garden, 
regardless of who designs it, only maintains itself based upon the garden gardeners who steward it. Exactly. <laughs> yes. We don't give them enough credit. Yes. Absolutely. That, that very quickly. You, you know, I, I, will, I would say this. We already talked about Dexter once. We'll bring it up again that if Fergus Garrett doesn't enter the picture at Great Dexter and someone not as talented as him, who knows where exactly. that, that goes mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I think that, that that makes so much sense that getting an opportunity, how much on the tours, and obviously this is going to vary garden owner by garden owner that are still involved who actively participate on the tours with you in those cases. Oh, you mean when we visit their Yeah, when you visit some are- of those modern gardens where those gardeners uh-huh. are still actively well, involved, do they participate on the tours and, and talk yes. and present at all? Right. Usually usually this is what happens if they have a gardener it will be either they themselves or if they can't they'll ask the gardener to lead us through the garden now i'm saying that and i shouldn't have said it exactly like that it's actually we ask them to introduce the garden say what they feel is important about the garden how it came about all of that and then and then um perhaps take us into the garden and then usually Americans do not like to follow someone through a garden they always stray they always go right and left and everywhere so we I have gotten to the place where usually I say you know give us your introduction and then if you could stay in the garden so people who want to ask more questions uh, can do that and then the rest of the people kind of explore on their own um, because if we don't, then they will, they will, uh, you know, it, it, it isn't terribly polite to the person that's speaking because they're, they're exploring, they see this over here and they want to go see it. Um, so, uh, it's just American independence on full display. Apparently. It is. And that's it all. Is. That will, and, and I think that is also, as we, we, we talk about your book adventures in Eden, which just, the, the photography and and the gardens that you went to to put this together just seems spectacular. How much of that that exploration do you see from people? It, does that divide up at all? Are the people that are maybe landscape designers are they more interested in in speaking to the garden maker or the the gardener who oversees the garden? And then uh, just general garden enthusiasts tend to just want to explore on their own. Is there any kind of division between those two groups in that way? No, that's interesting. You know what? I, I don't know that I've ever really, um, I could, I don't know if I can say that it's one or the other. Um, a lot of times there are, uh, you know, a regular home gardener who, who really, uh, needs encouragement in knowing how to approach this garden. And so they, they talk to the homeowner or the, the gardener um, more. A garden designers uh, pop in and out. They will go and look at something and then they have a question and they come back and ask a question. Um, so I don't know that I can say it's one or the other. Uh, uh, I, I, but on a tour, this, I mean, you know, I'm sure that 
I don't even have to say this, but let me let me say it anyway. On a tour, there are always people who are highly independent and will always be wandering off to the farthest corner of every garden you go into. And then there are other people who who really stay close to, you know, to to where there's a group. So it's just different personalities. There is. Okay. I'm going to ask you, no one is better qualified to answer this, Carolyn, than you. I've from plants, people that I have known throughout my time doing this, I find that there are two different viewpoints on this. There are some that believe the garden should just be taken in in quiet and solace. And you just let Mm -hmm. the garden speak to you kind of approach. Mm -hmm. But then I, I think there's also people and maybe they lean a little bit more horticultural or plants person who wants to know every cultivar. Right. They want to know every variety, yeah. every species. Uh-huh. And do you find that that's sort of is there any kind of truth in that? You know, what what yes. do you see is is that typically sort of the breakdown? Yes, that it, that it, you're absolutely right. And one of the things I, I give them a little welcome bag when they when we start the tour. And in there is a notebook <laughs> because um, I, I want them to write down what they see that they think they might want to use back home. And if they don't write it down, they'll forget, even though they think they won't, they will, because we see too many things. And so they walk around these notebooks and asking questions and writing it down. And then the other thing that happens a lot, since we all carry cameras these days, is that uh, they take pictures of plants that they see and like or are curious about. And then when we get back on the coach, they ask me, or I usually have a European who travels with me, who uh, who is part of the the tour, uh, who is very fluent in the in the plants of that region, and uh, so that you know, there's a lot of talking about it. And then there's you know googling, and um, it's a very lively. Uh, you have a sense that people are highly engaged. Well, and, and that's one of those components that I think is so interesting about some of the gardens that you get to go explore. And we're going to talk about some of them here in a second, that there is also the plant choices that are being made that mm-hmm. I do think are are sometimes, you know, I, I say this all the time, again, another plant. If I see another Hemerocla stella dioro, I may vomit, right? In the United States, you just see these these similar plants over and over and over again. And as you mentioned, you see it sometimes in Europe as well, just people staying within certain boxes. Is that a part of it too, that I have to imagine mm-hmm. that there are people that that are going on the tours, that they are seeing plants they have literally never seen in their entire life? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. There's just, there's, it's, um, you know, in England and the Netherlands and Germany, the nurseries have, particularly the perennial nurseries, have a huge palette of plants. So that, you know, I use this example and it maybe is a little off, but, you know, let's say that you want to buy a Persicaria. And uh, in the United States, you'd be lucky if you found one in a nursery. In the Netherlands, particularly, where they are, you know, have green thumbs like you would 
you wouldn't believe. You'll go to a nursery and there will be 18. You know, mm. it's like you just you just can't believe it. It's like the 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 depth of plants that's available is enormous. And that happens also in England. Uh, you know, but it, it it's something that just hits you in the face in the Netherlands. Um, how, what their plant choices are. It's just so great. Um, and, and so on a tour, you know, we really, uh, it, it, a lot of stuff is really new to, to the people that are on the tour. You- and, and, and at first it was new to me too, because I knew a little bit, but I didn't know it to the extent that I do now. And, um, do you ever you know. run into a situation where you have, because this is something that's been frustrating for me over my time at gardening, Carolyn, mm-hmm. and I've tried to fix it through some of the, the curated garden programs that we've created for people, but do you get a traveler who's gone on one of the tours with you, been inspired by some of these plants that they've seen, comes back to their own home garden and can't find the plants? And it's like, oh, yeah. what, 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 I thought I'd be able to, and then... No. Yes. Yes, it happens. It happens Uh, all the time, all the time. But, you know, right now there are mail order nurseries that do tend to, I point them in in the direction of some of these mail order nurseries that really do have, and they tend to be on the West Coast, have a wider range of plants. Then we can get like in my neighborhood, for example. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's one of the things that has been also interesting about the the year of 2020 global pandemic that we're, we're living through, mm-hmm. that it feels like the world of gardening and plants people has gotten a little smaller. Right. And that's given more access maybe to some of these plants because people are getting more comfortable with mm-hmm. buying things online, understanding mm-hmm. that, you know, getting a plant when it's in full bloom and some weird branded nursery pot is not always the best move and doesn't always give you the best plants. Not Mm -hmm. all the time, people. Nobody send me hate. If you work for some of those companies, I know you guys listen. Don't be like, oh, don't say anything bad. It's okay, people. Everybody will get over it. Um, (laughs) That's not always the solution, right? That that plant that you're looking for that you might have seen that was magical that could do well in your climate it's going to come maybe in a smaller size that'll let it establish. It'll let it do its thing. And I I think that is hopefully the future with some Mm -hmm. of this because, you know, no offense to the big box stores, but they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're in, they're in a different business in many Mm -hmm. ways than the kind of gardens and plants that we're probably talking about, Carolyn. So Mm -hmm. give me the, the first garden for you personally in your time in doing the tours that when you were approached or thought about doing a book that was like, this was one of the gardens that I really felt needed to be shared with people. Okay. Well, um, and that's a tough question. There, I'm there sure. Was- Cause you've seen, you, you've seen probably so many at this point that there's, yeah. you, you know, it's not just a, a one, but I'm, I'm sure there's gotta be a, at least a couple that really sparked that for you. Well, one of the one of the gardens that I just knew would be in the book because it's one of my favorite gardens is was Broughton Grange, uh, which is in uh, Oxfordshire in England, and it 
it is a large older garden that has had a new garden, kind of a four acre walled garden um, uh, added to it. And I knew that that walled garden would be in the book. Uh, that, in fact, that was the first piece I wrote. Uh, that was the the sample piece that Timber wanted to see, my editor wanted to see. Um, and, you know, the reason uh, that stood out in my mind is that it, it was a garden that broke away from the 1920s idea of, you know, garden rooms. So, you know, gardens in England, many, many, many have followed this model ever since Hidcote, which is, you know, uh, you have high hedges that create a space that has a particular theme and you have multiple rooms, uh, you know, each, each room then changes its theme. And Broughton Grange, uh, the walled garden at Broughton Grange, it broke away from that. And it was shocking to a lot of, uh, a lot of UK gardeners um, that they, it was a garden that was open to the countryside. Now, most of these gardens that had garden rooms, that have garden rooms, they at some point in the garden open up to the countryside. But this walled garden was completely open. So it was an exciting garden to visit in that way. Plus, it um, it had some features that were just exceptional. Um, you know, there it has, oh, uh, the, the parterre that you see on the cover of the book, that is the Broughton Grange lower terrace. And so that modern parterre that looks like it's an abstract form, um, that, that, is, uh, that was a stunning, it's, it's stunningly beautiful. Plus, it is, uh, you know, the concept, once you find out a little bit more about it, is so interesting. It, the garden was made by Tom Stewart Smith. Who is? Um, I, I think he's. There are many, many, many great garden designers in England, but he's one of the best. He's he's at the top tier, and if not the best. Well, and, you also find that again with, with with Tom's work, I think there is also a, a certain bravery there too, that it, it, it doesn't always fall in. You know, I, the the role of the R, RHS overall in the UK is, is super important, but there are are times where there's a certain formality to to some of the approaches, and I think his work is is much in line like with what we're talking about. That there's a certain bravery and like plant choice and 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 design style and aesthetic that I think it represents. I have yes, absolutely, and he does it so beautifully. It's just, uh, you know, his, the plantsmanship of, of his gardens is just outstanding. And, uh, you, you know, some gardens, um, how can I describe it? Some gardens, you, you know, you, you look up and, and around. He has in, in this garden an area where, there's a small path that goes through an immense planting. I mean, it's huge. And um, 
and it's all naturalistic and, you know, just so much happening. But this little path that goes through it, it's a one person path. And so you find that you have to look down. It's a little bit like the Japanese gardens where you can't just walk looking straight ahead, that you have to choose your steps. And that's the way that is. And it's so, it's, it, I find it just, first of all, strikingly beautiful, but also it, just invigorating. It has such an exciting plant palette. Um, and if you go there at different times of year, it changes, of course, you know, it'll be uh, one group of plants in the spring, but then in midsummer, it's another one. And then in the fall, it's another group of plants that shine. So it's very, very well done. Just, a, you know, it's a really extraordinary uh, garden. And of course, you know, with Tom Stewart Smith, you don't, there are not that many gardens of his that are open to, to being able to see them. They're private. And people don't want people, other people coming in. So, um, so this is one garden where you can really see that style. You know, it's it's his style uh, in a real full expression. Is there a garden from the Netherlands? You know, we've mentioned, and for all of you that you know, listen, you guys clearly know this. That some of my friends who are growers in Holland have been on the podcast. Mm -hmm. That there's a great nursery tradition in the country. Mm -hmm. Are there, uh, is there any specific garden from the Netherlands that really stands out to you? Well, first of all, there are the Aldolf gardens, which are incredible, and but they all tend to be public gardens. Uh, there was a, a private garden that he that he designed in '95 uh, that we we saw a number of times, but that that couple as they've gotten older, have decided that they can no longer keep it up. And so they moved. And so we won't get to see that garden again. Uh, but there is a garden that isn't in the book, but uh, another garden by this designer. The designer's name is Noel von Mirlo, and he is incredibly talented. Um, I've seen two of his gardens uh, and uh, and he's done many more, but uh, the one that it really is amazing um, was the Japanese water garden. Uh, that's what he calls it. I think of it. I think I think of it as you know every every culture calls things differently. To me, it's more of an Asian. You know, it's not strictly Japanese, but it's very modern. Um, and it, it's a it's a water garden that has a big big pond and then um there is a tea house and uh, he has he uses in this garden really uh, uh adventurous materials for one thing he takes uh these huge piers that are used um on on water sites uh you know for building building piers uh you know but uh, these are these are wooden well, I don't know what, what to call them exactly. Uh, they're 12 by 12 or larger. And they're huge. They're tall. And he stands them upright, um, spacing them at various distances so that you get these kind of views into the garden at uh, that are 
it's not like you're really controlled, but that it's just an interesting way to of the first view of the garden when you go in. That's the first thing. And then he takes those same 12 by 12 timbers and he stacks them to make um, uh, benches. And one bench extends out over the water. So it's taking a, a repurposing of material is what it is. He did the same thing with a bridge that he created over the pond. And these are big uh, four by eight slabs of steel. Now they're not corten, they're just regular steel and maybe half inch thick. And he made, a, and a, he overlapped them a little bit like a Mondrian uh, composition so that they create a bridge as you go across to walk across the water. And it's stunning. It's just, it's, it's just amazing. Now, Noel, unlike most designers, he does not do planting design. He does the architecture of the garden, the features of the garden, the concept of the garden. And then he works with another designer. And I just knew this was going to happen. I should have written it down. I forgot, I've forgotten his name, uh, who does the planting design. But the planting design is naturalistic, but it's not naturalistic like an Aldolf garden. So he's they have they have created this way of making a garden, um, the style of making gardens that both is of the the gardening community they come from, but it, it's a big step away, um, and it's it's just a beautiful, quiet, peaceful place. Well, um, and I think that's so important that when you you mention. I'm curious of your opinion on this, Carolyn, because it's something uh, as I recorded the podcast with my friend Paul Zimmerman about roses before you and I were chatting uh -huh. that yes. we mentioned how Pete's work being so influential. I think one of the beyond his own, as he would argue, but art artistry that he exhibits in his plant selections and the plant communities that he creates. But I also think what he deserves a lot of credit for is the exploration of a lot of genera of plants and species yes. that weren't being absolutely even yeah. talked about that suddenly now are in demand <laughs> in uh at least in the garden design world but do you feel that there's maybe too much copycatting of that right that there's huh? there's too much of of that style of people trying to to take his concept or his work and just sort of doing like a small scaled down version of that sometimes and not innovating like you're talking about with Noel. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I think you're right. But I think that, you know, I have a lot of patience with that because what Pete does so skillfully is very, very hard for most of us. And so people have to try out and, and, and kind of, put their toe in the water and try things by copying. You know, it's a little bit like um, when you go to art school, a lot of times assignments are that you go to a museum and you copy the great masterpieces. I think that that's what's happening right now. That people, uh, you know, people are trying it out and trying to figure it out, you know, how to do it. Um, and 
and I think that, you know, in, in 10 years, there will be a stepping away. You know, there's a, a I think that in the Netherlands, you, you definitely see that, that people are trying to do a little bit what Pete does. But there are designers and garden. I don't think so much garden. Although, how do I know? I don't know all the gardeners. No, in, like this in was this was like this was something that I, I think um, Paul and I were talking about was, you know, we both felt in conversation that in some of the the plant communities and pairings that Pete makes, that something like some of the roses that are out there in the world could blend in with that beautifully, but that's not a plant that Pete typically uses in his design work. But yet, I guess what I would be scared of is that people start to develop these like rules, right? Exactly. And, and we start yeah. to, and we lose the creativity of being able to say, yes. I wonder if a rose would work there. And instead they're just like, oh, let me put a eupatorium there. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I want for people to understand that part of like with your book and the tours and all of that, like, do you, do you feel like that's really it, right? That it's about like understanding the creative freedom that, that seeing these type pieces of, mm -hmm. of garden design should give you is that insight. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, that I have, I have something that relates to this. I mean, I experienced it last summer. Uh, we went to Maxim, Maximilian Park in Ham, Germany, where there's an absolutely gorgeous, peat planting which has now been expanded and they had just finished putting in the new section when we got there and i was walking through it and there was a delphinium i nearly fell over i mean who would who would think that pete would ever use a delphinium but you know, he grows, he changes. He doesn't consider that there are rigid rules, uh, you know, in terms of what plants he can use. I mean, he said to me, you know, we visit him usually every year when we're there. Well, we have so far. I don't know how long that's going to happen. But anyway, um, you know, he has said to me, you know, people, he said, people act as though I never use shrubs or trees. He said, it's not true. You know, he'll use it. Thing. Uh, you know, it just is as long as it fits into the intent of the design. And um and, and so, you know, this whole this delphinium thing was was a a big eye opener to me. You know, he's still he's still he he, he 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 a good plant is a good plant to him. And maybe someday soon we'll see him use roses. Well, and do, do you feel that and I I've heard Pete himself pushed back on this. We've got to get him on the podcast here at some point, people in chat with this subject, because I, I think there's almost been pushback from, from him in a couple of times I've heard him asked about this, where people want to almost refer to what he does as natives. And oh, yeah, no, yes, he, that's, no, you're absolutely right. He's, no. And, no, and that has been and that has been a, a problem, I think, for some people, in particular in the United States, because, you in know, the and, United States. and I think native are and, and some of these words that have become buzzy and trendy within the, the nursery and horticulture industry, I think are all fantastic. But I, I, I certainly 
don't believe and Pete himself has pushed back on it. Do you see that at all? Like there's sometimes this initial reaction to maybe some of this more loose, naturalistic, robust plants, sometimes species plants mixed in with cultivated varieties that maybe there is that sort of jump to people thinking that these are like native plants. Uh, I, I don't remember anyone on my tours saying that, but we have discussed the the kind of uh, uh, the whole nativist tendencies in the United States and what's happening with it now. Because in Europe, it's just not it's not something that uh, you know they're concerned about. They want to have diverse gardens, and they believe, and I think we're going to find out very soon, there are going to be more and more studies are going to come out that show that gardens with an enormous diversity of plants of all types, all types, are the ones that have the most uh, biodiversity. Um, you know, there was um, there uh, just in the last... This summer, uh, Greg Dixter had some lectures, uh, Zoom lectures, and one of them was on the biodiversity audit that was done at Great Dixter, and they found that the diversity was greater than almost anywhere else that the, the professionals that were doing the audit had seen, that there were species living in the garden that had, um, you know, insects or spiders or whatever um, that were were supposed to be almost uh, extinct, and they found them. And the fact is that, you know, I think we're going to find out that gardens are are a place where uh, whether there's there's natives or non natives, gardens can be a place where we have. Um, we have, we can help the environment in our gardens um, through s- certain practices. You know, I, I that that's that lecture is available on Vimeo. Um, I think it says it's something called biodiversity at Great Dexter. It all, opened my eyes. All of the yes, I totally because what I think what we're what we're seeing a little bit in the states in particular is. Instead of it, instead of it being a block planting of coleus, <laughs> we're seeing yeah. it being a block planting of echinacea purpurea. Like, like that's not. It's still not fulfilling what we're we're talking yes. about, which is getting away from a monocrop kind of approach mm-hmm. to gardening, mm-hmm. which is what we see is diversity and the more plants and the larger your range and palette of plants the better it is ecologically as well. A- and I think that is something that, that you, when you brought that up, I, I watched that same uh, lecture. Oh, did you? Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, no one is okay. a bigger fanboy of Great Dixter and yeah. the whole team there. Listen, Carolyn, I spend m- most of my my nights between the hours of 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. trying to track <laughs> down Christopher Lloyd clips from 25 to 40 years ago. Um, oh, really? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes, it, it yes. is. Cool. <laughs> well, I have always felt that one of the things that that separated um, Dixter in particular was uh, Christopher Lloyd's willingness to to go against the norms in so many ways. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
I, I think it's either in the well-tempered gardener or his um, encyclopedia of flowering plants that he put together where he badmouths Lilium for two paragraphs, not based upon Lilium being bad plants, but being the, the production practices that have been used to get them into people's gardenings being so poor because they were dictated by the cut flower industry and not by the gardening industry. So the bulbs that you would receive would not be of good quality and not at the right time of year mm-hmm. and they wouldn't do well in gardens. So I, I think his ability to just honestly and passionately at times say things that were truths that maybe people within the industry didn't want to hear, but were truths. Um, yeah. I think his is, is to me is the, one of the legacies of him and, and of course, Dixter itself that's reflective. And I think we're, we're going through a similar period here with, with some of what we see out there. You mentioned social media being what, what really brought you to this step in your career and, and doing tours and now with the book. What do you, do you see it as, as only a positive? I guess sometimes I'll ask a lot of the guests, Carolyn, are you concerned sometimes that it's just sort of a, a, a vacuumous space occasionally where people are putting out information that's not always the best when it comes to gardening um, or do you see it as the, the positives outweigh the minuses on it? Hmm. Well, I do think a lot of misinformation is on social media. I try to ignore it. I try to go my own way and do what, well, I have two goals on social media. One is I want to increase people's awareness of good gardens and how beautiful they are and how rich in terms of uh, emotional content they have. And then secondly, I'm also obviously trying to uh, uh, gin up, <laughs> that's probably not the best word, but gin up uh, interest in my tours. So there are two things that I'm trying to do. And I try to stay totally on my own. Uh, not to get distracted. Yeah, but, I, I think that's very. I think that's very valuable and important trait. I think for a lot of people, that's one of the the challenges of social media is there are all of these sort of like side shoot um, worlds that exist within it. You know, I, I make the joke often, Carolyn, that if people are into three legged goats <laughs> somewhere on the internet, there's a, a Facebook group about three legged goats. Yes. And yeah. that those people believe three legged goats are the greatest goats ever. And there are no other goats of merit in the universe except for three legged goats. And <laughs> that can be a very <laughs> dangerous world to dive into at times. So I, I think there is a balance there for, for everybody. Right. You know, I, I think it helps to be really busy so that you can't really spend that much time on it. I, you know, I do my posts every day, uh, taking off usually one day on the weekend. And, uh, and then I don't pay much attention to anything else. I think that helps a lot. When I do, when I have had time to, <laughs> to pay attention it's upsetting. <laughs> you know? it, 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 I, think, I, I think it has been for all, you know, especially in the, you know, and, and I don't, I don't know if everybody can relate to this because I've had people say to me um, before in some social media content that I've produced less with the podcast because it's long form, but 
people have said, you know, you, you seem upset about this. And I, I think what people don't realize, and maybe for anybody that's in a profession that they're passionate about, that some of the topics that I'll talk about, it's not just the topic, it's the people I know. It's the history of a place that I'm aware of. Um, you know, some of these are friends of mine, literally. So I just want to make sure that when information that's put out there that is just patently wrong, it can be upsetting. Like it can mm-hmm. be. And I think anyone that is passionate about the the world that they, you know, mingle in professionally or a passionate enthusiast, um, it, it can be a challenge because there is sometimes those moments where I go, I cannot believe these people are saying this. Like, what, what are you talking about? This is like, like the, the native thing with Pete's uh-huh. would be a great example of that. And I can understand from Pete's perspective why he would push back on that so much <laughs> because yes. that's, that's, that is firstly not true. And secondly, there have even been people that have criticized him. Um, for, oh, yeah. for not using natives in certain plantings. And it just seems so ridiculous because the goal that we talk about with natives is an ecological, you know, goal. And as you said, places like Dixter with this huge biodiversity are exceeding the goal well, well more than anything that could be mm-hmm. accomplished. So I, I think mm-hmm. I, I think you have a really we're in the same company, Carolyn, is the same thing I'm saying when there's moments on <laughs> social media where we both get upset. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I sometimes do dig in, you know, I chip in and, uh, and then I, a lot of times I kind of regret it. I wish I hadn't gotten involved. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And there's many good things for me that have come out of social media. And, um, and I, I just try to put boundaries on it. So as we start to head towards the home stretch here, Carolyn, um, uh-huh. we have a mutual friend in Jimmy Blake, and I'm curious. I don't think Jimmy would would mind me saying this at all. Jimmy's garden at Hunting Brook is a real example of like a plants person's garden. Yes, right. That he is. he begins with a collection. I mean, his his book itself is is titled "A Beautiful Obsession." Um, are there gardens that represent that to you? Do you see gardens that start? in that way as a collection of particular plants and then evolve into a more garden or or is there a certain value in maybe just presenting some that are just in many ways collections of particular plant groups? Um, I think that probably there are some gardens like that. I don't know that I know them. You know, Jimmy is in a, uh, Jimmy's garden is in a category all its own. He has, he's got a very special personality and a very special kind of energy level. And, uh, you know, that drives him to do things that end up being exceptional. Uh, You know, it's, uh, I've seen him in the, from the first time I saw his garden to the second time, he had completely changed one area. And, and then, I wrote the book after I saw it the second time. I wrote the art, uh, the the piece on his on his garden on Hunting Brook, and then since then he's totally changed again. You know, it's like oh, what a special guy. He's just got so much. Uh, he loves, loves, loves plants, and uh, you know, he, he he has so much energy, 
and so much drive. Do you feel that? And that's a really important, and I'm I'm so happy that there are people like him and even the the changes that have been made at Dixter to the what once was thought of as the the hot garden with, you know, cannas and dahlias has, has changed mm-hmm. itself. That do you do you try to get across to people on social media, to to people that go on tours with you as travelers, that the importance of those kinds of people still, right? Like we oh, yeah. we, we need these people who I mean I, I I joke all the time that Jimmy's one of these people that as someone who considers myself a plants person first, he drives me crazy because he's posting things and I have no idea what they are for a moment, Carolyn. I'm like, (laughs) I know I'm like, what, what is that? And that is beautiful. Like that is what is, is, is beautiful about having people like that in the gardening world. Oh yeah. But I don't think that there are too many of too many Jimmy's out there. I think there are a lot of collectors but I don't know that they have that that kind of, the, well, let me step back a little bit. You know, I make the claim in my, in my, in what I've written about Hunting Brook, that Jimmy is more of a designer than he wants to admit. And that his drive to create new things is enormous. I think it's equal to his drive to, um, uh, collect, but he does both, you know, at 150 miles an hour, you know, he's like, uh, and I don't know too many other people now, maybe I'll meet them in the future. Could be, uh, you know, but I haven't met, he's a very special, special, um, person and his, and, and it's, it's invigorating to be around him. Well, and there's such a a beauty in the fact that I think one of the things that's lost sometimes in the the nursery horticultural side of the world, which sometimes gets very clearly wrapped up in the commerce and economics of paying the bills, which is understandable, but there are very few things in the current world that there is still like a wonderment involved mm-hmm. with and plants mm-hmm. and gardening are one of those there are new exactly new yes. introductions being bred there are new plants being discovered in the wild still to this day we're discovering new mm-hmm. species of different plants it is is that is there a particular garden for you that that sort of maybe shows or illustrates that like a garden that's really willing to just always feels like there's a wonderment of, of newness to it that comes to mind or even just a few of them? Well, I do think that there are quite a few that are like that, people who approach. Um, I don't know that it's only about plants, but also about creating spaces, you know, which is what uh, garden design is about. Um, and I, there are definitely people who are like that. You know, I don't, you, you know, have you heard of Peter Korn? Yes. Okay. Well, he's one of those people who just, you know, he's like a bull in a china shop. He just forges the head and creates things that are amazing. Uh, you know, so he's one of those people. He's definitely a collector. Um, and uh, But he he has two gardens now. And uh, one of them is in my book, and that is the original garden that he created by uh, in in a forest. And now he's at another location with his wife and son, 
and uh, making another garden, which I didn't write about. Um, you know, it was still still too new. Uh, you know, but both places, he's he's like, you know, he's got that energy of a of a collector. Um, what was twenty twenty like for you? I have to imagine for you, even personally, right beyond the business implications of it. That you you know you have you I'm sure as an individual look forward to these tours as much as anybody. H- has it been mm-hmm. a little bit difficult for you? A little bit of wanderlust for for the year? Definitely, yeah. But there's something that's compensated. I have never all the years that I was a garden designer, and then since then uh, d- did the tours. I've never been home enough in the summer to really enjoy my garden and uh this year i i was in my garden every day and that hasn't happened for 40 years <laughs> you know i and that was so special just i i would just sit <laughs> because i had the time i never had time so, uh, you know, the book is finished. There's, you know, that really took up two years of my life and it, all the spare time I had. And um, and this summer, so in some ways, I'm pretty grateful for this year. Well, and, um, and I have to think also that, you know, and I've, I've met two groups of people who are, are garden designers or, or passionate garden enthusiasts, whatever we want to label people as. but there's a group that goes on tours, visits gardens, and then immediately wants to enact it, right? They, they take a little bit of a garden and then they want to make mm-hmm. that same thing. And then there's a group that is perfectly content just making those visits and seeing it in that space. Which for yourself did you fall into over the time in doing this? Actually, a little of both. I do not come home from a tour and immediately run out to my garden and change something. But I have ideas that percolate, you know? And so over the next season or two seasons or three seasons, I'll be thinking about something and then I'll make some change. Um, I, I, I see too many things (laughs) to, uh, to actually, uh, you know, there's a there's a cutoff point. You just can't do everything. So I I I I really try to just enjoy the gardens that I see for what they are, and to feel pleasure in being there. And uh, you know, to, if ideas come to me that work out for me in my own garden. Um, that's fine. That's good. I appreciate that. Uh, but I don't see gardens in order to improve my own garden. Do you, do I you, see them as a, as a piece of work of art as, you know, it's, it's like seeing an, a, a painting. As you were putting the book together mm-hmm. again, which is adventures in Eden. Did you, mm-hmm. did you, do you have a moment for people? Cause I think this is one of the and, and I, I do this a lot too, and I shouldn't from someone who is doing a massive remodel of a two and a half acre garden this fall and spring. But oh wow, I, I find um, I'm prefacing myself sometimes when I'm communicating about 
my garden here that on a big scale that I'm doing it at or some of the gardens that are illustrated in the book that people sometimes feel that's not relatable to them and their scale that they're gardening at. How how do you translate that to people? Because I do think that is something, and, and I don't know, I, I often feel that maybe too, too many times is uh, garden designers and garden professionals, whatever, again, title you want to give us. Um, maybe we're making too big of a deal of that and maybe people don't actually feel that way, but I think it's something that's said a lot is, are some of these large gardens relatable to people? Mm-hmm. Well, I, the the truth is I tried to pick gardens that were not just large and not just extravagant, that I tried to pick gardens that were um, – that said something about the passion of the of the owner, the passion passion that they brought to making their garden, and also uh, that would in some way, you know, uh, not just be a wealthy person's garden. Um, and so, if someone says about my book that it's all to uh, um, let's see, high end, uh, which, uh, you know, it's just not true. The, there are people in the book who have spent their life making a garden on a very humble income. And they don't have the antique focal points. They don't have stone, uh, uh, you know, containers, uh, you know. But they have made something that's worth looking at, and that is an idea that they've taken and they, they created something that's very of itself. And I hope that people see that. Um, Do you think would, that's a bit of a myth? I I, I find it what, interesting. What's that, a myth? That there there has been, and maybe this gets back to I think, which is a real interesting point that you made earlier in the fact that you try to visit some gardens that are are newer in their creation along with the, some of the historic gardens because I do I I have had these comments Carolyn when we talk about the the murky waters of social media sometimes um mm-hmm. that people will say to me well well that's nice for you right like you can afford that those kind of comments will sometimes right. come at me when the truth is people mm-hmm. not that you're my accountants or I have to show you you don't work for the IRS who do you think you are anyhow um that's not the case that everything I've done here has just been me. I've never hired out really anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exactly. The the trees you see planted, I planted every one of them. The stones you see laid, I laid every one of them. Do you think that's, that's a myth that there are so many great gardens be whatever scale they're at that so much of it has been the person or the or, or the persons that have invested themselves in it as much as sometimes the gardens that have had you know super wealthy owners behind them right no i and i really think it's important for us to acknowledge and to shine a light on those gardeners and gar i call them owner designers um because you know, there's, they, it's one thing to uh, be able to afford to have something um, designed 
that you approve or you participate in the design in some way. Uh, and then you're able to install it all at once because you've got the resources for that. But it's quite another thing to be someone who has the creativity and the talent to uh, make a garden that they live with every day. That's very, very special. Um, I don't, you know, I feel that that kind of garden has an awful lot to say to all of us. And I try always to acknowledge on all on social media. Um, I use the term and no one else uses that hashtag. I'm the only one. <laughs> Owner designer. It's a very important category. And I think we, we, we need to acknowledge how talented these people are. And do you feel also that one of the things that is, again, I think a misinterpretation by people, and actually all the gardens I can think of are examples of this, and it's not like there's just a big install. We we brought a bunch of plants in. Here's a bunch of plants. Mm -hmm. We got them all in. Uh, We brought Mm -hmm. our hardscaping. We had some backhoes. We had some excavators out. We were here for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And then it's just done. That's it. It's over. That most gardens good ones are evolving with time exactly it's they exactly that is that's really important to understand that a garden is not finished <laughs> you know it's an evolution and it's and if you are the person who lives there and who wanders in this garden every day who looks at it every day who enjoys it every day um, your choices in making that garden evolve are really going to be, for most of the time, they're going to be excellent. They're going to be really good for that garden. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails, wondering about the stories they could tell. I think of all the weight I carry on my own, and I try to empathize with all they bear. There's something about the sun that brings me back to life. It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way Everybody's putting down this brand new high 
But they're just whispers way up here They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears So Questions. Oh,